Thank you, Father, for the morning. Thank you, Father, for Scripture that encourages our hearts, challenges us, directs us, gives us instruction. Thank you for the joy of fellowship that we can enjoy with one another, to be reminded of our position before you and with one another and your care for us through one another. Thank you, Father, for prayer, for access to the throne of God, access to the singular transcendent being, the one who is greater than all and over all, who has invited us to come to him with our needs. Thank you that you are a prayer hearing God that loves to answer our needs. Thank you for song. Thank you for reminders this morning of the wonder and mercy of our Savior. And thank you, Father, for the Savior who gives us that access of which we just spoke to your gracious throne. And thank you that you and Son and Spirit have worked together to produce this Word of God that is your divine revelation to us. It is inerrant. It is perfect in every way. It needs nothing to improve it. It was helpful in the day that the first word was written under the pen of Job. It was helpful in the day in which the last word was written under the pen of John. And it was helpful, is helpful today as well. This is, this is our guide. We have nothing else by which we might know you intimately and truly except your self-revelation to us in this word. And so would you guide us this morning? Would you direct us? And would you give us comfort and peace as we contemplate this precious word? We commend ourselves to you for your work in our hearts while we hear this word in Christ's name. Amen. One of the beauties of Scripture is that it takes the transcendent, infinite, knowable, unknowable God and reveals Him to us so that not only can we know Him, but that we can understand Him. And one of the ways that the Bible does that is it takes realities that we are well acquainted with and connects them to the nature of God, as if to say, you know how this works. God is like that, except infinitely more. And one of the figures that the Bible uses repeatedly to reveal the nature and the character of God to us is the imagery of a shepherd. You know Psalm 23, we've read it this morning already, but my guess is, that of all the pages in Scripture, that is the one that is the most well-worn in your Bible. Ask any unbeliever about 
the most important passage in the Bible, and inevitably they'll say Psalm 23. That's the one they know. And people know it for a reason. It's a comfort. And it's a guide. And it's hopeful and it's encouraging. So you know Psalm 23 and God as shepherd. You know John 10 and Christ as the good shepherd. But how about these? Jacob, Genesis 48. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Psalm 80. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Isaiah 40. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Micah 5. And he, the Messiah, will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Revelation 7. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lamb is the shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Virtually from the first page of Scripture to virtually the last page of Scripture, God is exposed to us as the great shepherd of us, His sheep. As the shepherd, He is one who guides us, who provides for us, who corrects us, who loves us with great skill and with great tenderness. It's an image that resonates with us today, even if we aren't ranchers, and I'm not, and I know very little about sheep, but it still resonates, doesn't it? God is not only a shepherd, though, but he also calls those who care for his people to be shepherds and to shepherd them in a tender manner as well, which is why our mission statement at Grace Bible Church says we exist to shepherd God's people by God's grace for God's glory. How do we care for people? By God's grace. What's His grace? His His revealed Word to us. That's why we have the image of the open Bible and the shepherd's staff. That's what we exist to do. That imagery of God's people shepherding other of God's people is also prolific in Scripture. First Chronicles 11. In past times, even when Saul was king, you, David, were the one who led out and brought in Israel... And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people Israel. Psalm 78. So he, David, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and he guided them with his skillful hands. Jeremiah 3, the promise of God, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. John 21, another passage that's known well to you. Jesus said to Peter again the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter was grieved to him, grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend, shepherd my sheep. Acts 20, 28, be on guard. Paul says, for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. First Peter one, excuse me, first Peter two, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So chapter five, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So God is our shepherd. He's the one. He is the one to whom we go when we have need, when we have burdens, when we need refuge, when we need protection, when we need help. He's our source of strength. And along with that, he has given us shepherds to guide us as well. It's a it's a beautiful picture of God's astounding kindness towards us. Unfortunately. And you knew there was something like that coming, didn't you? Well, serving as shepherds for the great shepherd is a great privilege. There have been some, dare I say many, who have done it for selfish ends. Several Old Testament passages in particular indict ungodly shepherds for their ungodly leadership. Jeremiah 23, a couple weeks ago we read Isaiah 34 expose the false shepherds of Israel and their folly and the folly of following them. And that is a similar section into which we find ourselves now in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 10 and 11, we're going to see this repeated theme of God as the shepherd and the danger of false shepherds to lead us away. Last time, as we considered the book of Zechariah, we saw God as the faithful shepherd king. God who would come as king, as Messiah, and rule on his throne. And at the same time, serve as the shepherd of his people. 9.16, the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. They're his flock and he is the shepherd who cares for them. Today we see that theme is expanded as well as seeing the antithesis to God as the shepherd. We'll start to see God's particular care of, of his people as he, as shepherd king, brings his people into the land and establishes his eternal kingdom. And we see the danger of following those who are slipping in as false shepherds to lead people astray. We're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 10, and here's what we're going to find. Beware of the existence of and the temptations offered by false shepherds. The instruction to the Israelites about the dangers of shepherds who don't follow God as shepherd is instructed for us as well. Because our pastors and our elders, those who guide us, serve as those who would take us to the good shepherd. 
And we need a clear picture of our mind. What, what should they be doing? Those of us who serve as elders need to have this clear picture in our minds. What, what is it that we are doing? And you need to have a clear picture what should be expected by these men and what should not be expected by them. To that end, we're going to find four pictures of good and bad shepherds to exhort us to be attentive to whom we are following and what we are wanting. All of us are following something because we want something. We have desires that compel us, desires that drive us, desires that inform everything we think and everything we do and everywhere we go. And those things should be shaped by the good shepherds who take us to the great shepherd. And we need to be well aware of those who are seeking to dissuade us. As a first picture, let us see, first of all, the provision of the good shepherd. We've already noted the fact that God has introduced himself in chapter 9, especially in verse 16, as the shepherd king, the shepherd messiah of Israel. And in this verse, verse 1 of chapter 10, he's going to continue expanding and revealing how it is that he is going to care for his flock as their shepherd. And because of the blessings that are promised in verses 16 and 17, Zechariah then compels the people of Israel to do something in particular. So there are blessings that are coming from this one who is the shepherd. They will be as the stones of a crown, 916. They will be sparkling in his land. They, they will have comeliness and beauty. And grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. They'll have everything they need to flourish and nothing will ever be taken away from them. And they will be permanently satisfied. Because of that, because of what's coming, because of the promise of the one who is the great shepherd king, shepherd messiah, he says in 10.1, ask, ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain. So at the time when the spring rain comes, he says, ask God for help. This is a command to go to the shepherd and ask for help. There's a particular time I know nothing about ranching, so I'm in farming. Though I come from a long line of farmers, I, my, I would, um, I would, uh, I, I'm a desecration to my grandfather's name because I know nothing. Uh, my father was a great farmer and um, spent his whole life farming. I have uncles that were farmers. Um, me, uh, not so much. But what I do know, at least from what I read, is that there are times at the growth season that you need particular amounts of rain and then other times you need the rain to stop and other times you need the sun to come out. And if you don't have it in the right sequence, the crops don't grow and they, even the crops die. And what he is saying in this verse is, at the time when the last rains of spring are essential to make that crop grow, and you can't dictate whether or not the rain is going to come, ask. Go to God. The shepherd and ask him for those rains. 
And think about the time here, you know, we'll, we'll go out and I'll, Regina and I'll be walking around the yard and she'll be showing me stuff and I'll say, well, what happened to that? Why, why did that not die? No rain. Or rain at the wrong time and it didn't make it. Think about the blue bonnets. I mean, some years they're just prolific, right? And other years it's like, where are the blue bonnets this year? It all has to do with rain. That's all I know about it. It just has to do with rain. And God says, you can't bring the rain. But I can. And I care. So ask me. Why should they ask the shepherd for their needs? Think about it this way. Why would a transcendent God be interested in their needs? Why would he be interested in them? Because, notice what he says, ask for the rain. The Lord, ask the Lord, ask the Lord who makes the storm clouds. Why does he make the storm clouds? So it'll rain. Why does he want it to rain? So the crops will grow. Why does he want the crops to grow? So that there will be food. Why does he want food? So that we will be fed and we will be healthy and we will have our needs met. It is his way of saying, I care. I'm compassionate. All you have to do is ask. And I will give it to you. He is, as one writer has said, Israel's true protector and benefactor. The one who makes the storm clouds. The one, the one who forms them in the heavens and brings them and makes the water to drop from the sky. He does so because he is a benefactor, a protector, a carer, a lover of his people. Martin Luther said it this way. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. You can go to him in his fortress and he won't fail you. And he will protect you and he will keep you. Because he does care for you. Notice this as well. Not only they should go to him. Because he is the provider for them. But also go to them. Go to him because he loves to care for them. Are you aware that God delights to give good gifts? Notice what it says. End of verse 10, last line. And in response to the asking, He will give them showers of rain. And then He extrapolates what the purpose of the rain is. He will give them showers of rain, i.e. vegetation in the field. It's not just that He's making it to rain. But he's making it to rain so things grow, so that we have food, so that we can eat, so that we're cared for. He provides so that we are sustained. Jesus himself makes this point to us. Matthew chapter 11, 
verse 28. Come to me. Hmm. Well, we'll say this is the right one. It's not 1128. Where is it? You know, I hate this when I write things down in my notes and it's the wrong thing. I have one thing in my head and it's the wrong place. Okay, so um, he cares for sparrows, right? And he knows the number of the hairs of your head. Some of you, it's easy to count. Others of us, not so much. Actually, I'm headed towards that easier to count stage in life. He knows and he cares about those things. He cares when the sparrow falls. If he cares about those things, won't he give you what you need in your suffering and in your need? I think that's on Matthew 11. That's Luke 11. He also cares for those who aren't his. He brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Matthew 5. So he cares even for those who don't fully belong to him yet. All this means that he is gracious, he is generous, he is kind, he is benevolent, he is loving, he's compassionate. And notice how Zechariah ends this verse. He says he will bring vegetation in the field to each man. Now the word each in my translation is italicized, which means that it's actually not in the text, but it helps the translators have helped have supplied that to help us understand the meaning of it literally it says to a man and he means by that that he will bring to a man what that man needs it means that he is sensitive to the particular needs of the particular individuals and that whoever asks for their needs god will provide those things And he'll give them exactly what they need. And so as Israel has begun to regather in the land, now 20 years in after the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple, and people are coming back and they're rehabitating the land, this is a good reminder to them coming back from Babylonian captivity about God who will provide for them And so they don't need to worry about captivity in the future. But it also reveals to us the nature and the character of God. He doesn't change. And what he was as one who was promised as a comfort to the people in Israel in Zechariah's day, he is still that today. He is unwavering and unchanging. Brothers and sisters, God also is our father and he has adopted us as our as his children and he loves to give us good things and so maybe we might ask the question what should we ask the shepherd you had any needs this week had any burdens any cares ask Ask. He is a prayer hearing God. There are lots of shepherds. There are lots of pseudo shepherds, I should say. 
who have all kinds of ideas about where you will find comfort, where you will find refuge, and where you will find protection. You go to God and you ask Him because He's the only one who really knows your need and He is the only one who is able to provide for you. I don't want to sidetrack from the main point of the message, but let me just ask, do you pray? Do you ask? Do you ask in the moment? God, I need help. I pray that prayer a lot on 377. (laughs) And actually, it's not just I need help. I need help for forgiveness. Would you forgive me my anger? And would you give me grace to be patient behind this idiot? I mean, this man in front of me who I'm sure is very kind and benevolent. Right? Do you pray in the moment? Do you pray ahead of time? Anticipating what is coming for the day. Lord, I've got to have a difficult conversation today. Would you guide my words? That they might give grace according to the need of the moment. Do you pray after the fact? Lord, this has happened. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Would you guide? Would you direct? Do you pray? Do you ask? Why would you ask him? Ask him. Because he delights to give. There are many times in my life my children have come to me and said, Dad, I need help. A very fond memory is I think Elizabeth was about a year and a half, maybe two years old. She toddled over to me, tears running down her eyes and holding a broken balloon in her hand. And she held it up to me and said, Daddy, fickets. <laughs> I can't fickets. But I know the one who can heal your heart. Have you asked him? Because he delights to give good things. Dare I also admit that there have been times in my life when I not only have not been able to give good gifts, sometimes I haven't wanted to give the good gift when it was in my capacity. That is not the Lord. He always gives good gifts. Everything we have is His best for us. Which means also that sometimes we need to ask for our needs. Other times we need to ask for wisdom for what He has granted to us. And other times we need to ask for endurance for what He gives because what He has given is something that is hard I get it. I live in this broken world too. And there are hardships. Brothers and sisters, go and ask. He's a good shepherd who is able to provide and loves to provide. You go and you ask. Only He's able to give you what you need and only He will guide you to what is truth and what is best. So you go. And as you go, be aware that on the pathway, there are those who are going to come alongside you and tempt you to go a different direction. 
And that is the deception of the false shepherds. Notice verse 2. He has just exposed to us the privilege and the responsibility of asking God for what we need. And verse 2 begins with the word for. That's giving a reason. Why should we do this? For, because. Because what? Go to God and ask Him for your need because the teraphim speak iniquity. And here he starts talking about false idols and false sources of refuge and places where they might seek to find answers that aren't rooted in the nature and character of God. And so Paul, excuse me, Zechariah says, I preach way too much in the Pauline epistles, evidently. Zechariah says, we ask God because... There are others who will purport to have the answers for our needs and they are false. And we go to ask God and not those others because we're always tempted to circumvent God's plan and go another way. There's always another way besides God's plan that seems to be easier and more appealing and more amenable. And let's go that way. And Zechariah says, don't go that way. A man-made refuge can never meet the longing of your soul. So who are the false shepherds that he identifies in this verse? He identifies two, though he could have exposed a great many more. First, he identifies the teraphim. We know the teraphim were idols. Honestly, we don't really know what they looked like. There is, there evidently was a, a little difference about the kinds of teraphim. There were large ones that were full-size, man-size idols that were evidently used in some kind of false corporate worship. So they were idols that were set up in a place of prominence in the false uh, worship centers and people would gather there and fall down in front of them. And then there were other idols that were smaller they were they were also man-made but they were they were used in the home and they were household idols household gods if you will so something you could put on the shelf and worship there's an irony there evidently these teraphim represented deceased ancestors and so they'd come to these idols and they would venerate them And then seek to find answers from them about things in the future. And notice what Zechariah says about these idols. For the teraphim, go to God and him alone because the teraphim speak iniquity. Now, they don't actually speak, do they? No, because they're rocks and stones and precious metals and wood, they're inanimate objects that don't have the capacity to speak. And yet they do say something, don't they? Everything they say is iniquity and sin. Everything they do leads to sin. These false idols can only lead to sin. It's even worse than that. The word iniquity here refers to misfortune. 
and disastrous consequences from placing hope in idols. Let me say it this way. If you place your hope in idols, you will get what idols can only give, and that's calamity. You only get disaster. MacArthur writes, Well, Yahweh's promises provide life and joy. Idolatry drives people to destruction. There's no hope in a false god. He expands that idea in the next line, a parallel line, and the diviners see lying vision, visions. The teraphim are created idols. These diviners are real live people. The teraphim were created and physically silent. These are real people who really speak and they really speak deceit, lying, moving you away from that which is true. And they tell false dreams. They're either revealing false dreams. Oh, I had a vision. Or you come to them with your dream and they interpret it falsely. Either way, they are liars. And because they are liars, they will never provide what the people want and the people need. Why is Zechariah being so obsessive about these idols and avoiding them? Because the people of Israel are like us and they were surrounded by idols. Everywhere they turned, there was an an opportunity for idol worship and for following idols. They were surrounded by them. And he also warned them because it is these idols that were the very source of their captivity in Babylon. Because they rejected God, God said, okay, you don't want me, let me send you to the one that you want. Just one example. Second Chronicles, some of you may have read that this week in your Bible reading, or it may be coming up for some of you in the next few days. Second Chronicles, chapter 25, verse 14. Now after Amaziah had, <clears throat> excuse me, now after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, He brought the gods and the sons of Seir and set them up as his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? Why are you worshiping the people you, the God of the people you just defeated? And as he was talking with him, the king said to him, have we appointed you as a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? Then the prophet stopped and said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and not listened to my counsel. Oh, brothers and sisters, they're all around. And they're always tempting. 
And they will only lead us to captivity. What's the consequence of following those false shepherds? Notice what he says in the middle of verse 2. They comfort in vain. This is the result. This is what you get when you follow an idol. Its comfort is empty. It's vanity. It's nothing. That's also an insightful sentence because it tells us what idols are designed to do. Why do people go to idols? Why did Israel keep saying, well, let's go to these these idols of these other nations. I know we have the word of God and I know we have this heritage and I know we have salvation by grace through faith. And I know we have all these things. Why did let's go to that idol anyway? Why? Because they're seeking comfort. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. It's a place where they think that they can find their happiness and their contentment and their encouragement and their hope. And notice what Zechariah says. The idols provide comfort in vanity. They're utterly incapable of it. It's futility. Let me just interject a side note. That does not mean that there won't be some pleasure in the idol or in the sin. I'm not going to tell you that all sin feels bad. If it did, you wouldn't sin because you'd say, that's going to hurt. I don't want to do that. I mean, that's why when I put something on the stove, I don't put my hand on top of the cast iron pan when it's been on high for 10 minutes. I know it's going to hurt. I think I did it one time. It's been a long time since I've done that. Sin would be that way. If sin only offered hurt, we wouldn't do it. But there is something of a pleasure in it. Hebrews tells us it's a passing pleasure. But we make that momentary passing pleasure our supreme comfort and that's going to be empty. It can't provide ultimate supreme comfort. That's the first result of following after idols. The second result is in the last two lines. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted because... There's no shepherd. When Israel followed her idols, they were uncared for. They were susceptible. They were defenseless. They had a need. Absolutely, they had a need. They had a need for protection. They had a need for crops. They had a need for provision. They had a need for an army. They had need for help against the invading enemies. Absolutely, they had a need. They just found a false place to go to find their help. And because of that, they wander like sheep. They wander because they don't know what to do. And they are afflicted. They suffer because they've done wrong things. Even worse, they become like the idols that they worship. Psalm 115, you're familiar with this psalm. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. 
They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. I think it was Vance Havner, the old preacher from multiple generations ago, that said, well, if that's the case, I'd, be, I'd as soon be dead as like that. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Watch this, verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. You'll become like that false God that you worship. And they need a shepherd to follow. And they have chosen not my shepherd and followed him instead. That's why he says at the end, they're afflicted, they suffer because there is no shepherd. Actually, there is a shepherd. They've just rejected him as being their shepherd. Idolatry, my brothers and sisters, is always false and always falling. Idolatry will not give Israel or us the help that we want, the help that we need. And it's that necessity of having faithful shepherds and being faithful shepherds that has informed our church mission statement. It's designed to help us remember We've got a goal here. We've got to care for the flock as if God is caring for that flock. And it's not only informed that mission statement, it's actually informed our focus for 2023, equipping the saints. That's our role. Caring for the flock to build you up, to to nurture you, to feed you, to provide you, to take you to the great shepherd of the sheep. These shepherds, in Zechariah 10, are condemned because they did not equip the sheep, and even worse, they led them astray. And we don't want to be those kinds of shepherds that lead you astray from the great shepherd. Who are the false shepherds? What are the false truths that we are tempted to follow? I haven't taken a poll, but I really don't think I have to. My guess is that nobody's been tempted this week to worship Baal or Buddha or a totem pole. But you are tempted to worship a variety of other God replacements. And that's an idol. An idol is anything that is more attractive to us than God or than obeying God. An idol is what we pursue when we think that God is dead or God is incapable. Now, we would never say that. Our theology is way better than that. We would never say God's not able, but functionally, that's what we do. I don't remember the exact story, but years ago I read something that Phil Yancey wrote about idolatry. And he said somebody, an unbeliever, had asked him about... um, what he believed in God, and so he articulated what he believed, and then the person said, then why don't you act as if he's alive? And functionally, when we believe that God isn't capable and not alive, then we will turn to idols. What thing, if you lost it, 
would make all meaning and significance and hope disappear from your life? What thing, if it were absent, would destroy your life? What's your worst nightmare? What has the power to ruin your day? The Bible says that could be an idol. An idol is anything apart from God that tempts you to say, if I have that, my life will have meaning and I will have value and significance. Which means, dear friends, that idols are all around us. I was going to say, you can't step outside this room without encountering them. Brothers and sisters, they're in this room. And they're in our hearts and in our desires. What kind of things make for idols? Entertainment and recreation. Life must be fun. Ease. I don't want complications in my life. Don't hassle me. Fear of suffering. I must avoid being hurt. Work, status, position. I must be worshipped. Side note. Anytime you're tempted to go to a pornographic picture, that's what's going on. She wants you to worship her. It's not just a picture. It's a form of worship. That's the goal of pornography. Another idol, love of money, love of possessions. We can make an idol of a biblical marriage or biblical children or a biblical home. Athletic abilities and hobbies. Being in control. I'm king today. Thank you. And this is the way the world will work. To be driven by performance and perfectionism as it relates to self. That's called Pharisaism. Or having expectation and performance of others. My friend must fill in the blank. Or I will. Negative consequences. They're all around us. And they're always enticing us to move away from the shepherd. The great shepherd. And from Christ. How can you identify your idols? Brad Bigney's helped us with a series of questions. What do you want? What do you desire? Seek, aim for, pursue, and hope for. What are your goals and expectations and intentions? What would make you happy? What do you feel like doing? Do you want what you want? Or do you want Christ's lordship? Where do you look for security and meaning, happiness, fulfillment, joy, comfort? What do you fear? What do you worry about? What do you love most of all? What do you hate most of all? At your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? What do you see as your rights? When you are pressured or tense, where do you turn? What do you think about? And how you answer those questions determine if you're following Christ or if you're following an idol and following a false shepherd who will lead you away from the God in heaven. We're not tempted today by the physical idols of Babylon, but we are tempted today by the new idols of a new Babylon every single day.
And this verse reminds us of the necessity to be aware of the consequences of idolatry and following false idols. You follow those idols and you will get lost. You will wander and you will suffer. Now you may not feel alone when that idol has embraced you. And I said that purposefully. You may not feel alone. You may not feel like you've gotten lost. You may not feel like you're wandering. But brother, you're wandering. Because you're not in the sheepfold of Christ's protection. Oh, note note the responsibility of avoiding the idols and the reality that they can never, ever satisfy. And note this as well. There is a responsibility not to be deceived. There's a responsibility to hear the message of the idol and say, that's not true. Now, I could preach about that, but David just did us a great service two weeks ago when he talked about lying, didn't he? You can go back and listen to that and be reminded, you've got a responsibility. I have a responsibility not to be deceived by the lies that are around us. So there are consequences for being deceived by false shepherds and false idols, but there are also consequences for the false shepherds. And I promise I'm going to go faster now. Notice verses 1 and 2, who's speaking? Zechariah. Who's speaking in verse 3? God. And he's not satisfied. And so God says this, verse 3, My anger is kindled against the shepherds. He's been patient. He's been waiting. Maybe one day these shepherds themselves will awaken and they'll redirect themselves and they'll lead my people in right ways. But his patience has ended and he has figuratively lit his anger. And his wrath against sin is kindled and ignited. Now when we get angry, sometimes, often, usually, there's collateral damage. You know what I'm talking about? You're kind of agitated at your wife. I I know none of you men would be this way, but you know, she's done something and you're just kind of agitated. And then it just kind of, the more you think about it, the bigger it gets. And you come home and you don't want to say anything in front of the kids, but you just, you're just ticked. And it just spills out. Not against her, but against the kids. I won't ask for a show of hands how many times that's happened. Or maybe you're at the grocery store and you're just picking something up for dinner on the way home and the checker is just that much too slow and you dump your anger against your wife at the checker at Kroger. Again, I'm sure it's never happened to anybody in here, but I've heard about people that it has. There's collateral damage, right? Not so with God. Notice what he says. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. God does not accidentally pour out his wrath and his anger against those who do not deserve it. His anger is righteous. It is exercised righteously and it is righteously directed at the only appropriate recipients of that 
anger. And in this instance, it is definitively against the shepherds. This is God's righteous wrath against sin and their sin. And the sin here is particularly heinous because these men were designed to emulate to the people. This is what the great shepherd is like. Follow us as we follow him. And they not only, they not only developed, desired, cultivated people to follow them, but they they led those people away from the one hope that those people had and directed them to follow vain and empty idols. It was a, it was a massive tragedy. And that's why God's anger is against those shepherds. And notice what else he says. My anger is not only kindled against the shepherds who didn't do what they should have done And I will also punish the male goats. And so here we have two lines in Hebrew poetry that are parallel. The one emulates or reiterates the previous line. And it seems like a mixed metaphor, right? My anger is against the shepherds. I'm going to punish the goats. Did God get confused? No. I think there's two things going on. One... Goats were often used in that culture to lead the sheep. So the goats would go in front and the sheep would follow after the goats. It's just another way of saying the goats were designed to lead and they didn't do their job. And I'm going to punish them. And I think there's also another subtle inference and that is this, that even while there are some who lead among people, all of us ultimately are followers, aren't we? And we're in one of two camps. We're either one of the sheep that follow after God or one of the goats that reject God. And I think he's subtly addressing that as well. They have failed as leaders. And I'm going to judge them. It's a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, be careful about who you follow and the desires you cultivate because... There are not only consequences for you, but you may be following someone else who is underneath the wrath of God and being prepared for it. And you don't want that. So we have seen the provision of the good shepherd, the deception of the false shepherds, the consequences of the false shepherds. Now see the nature of the good shepherd. The nature of the good shepherd. In contrast to the false shepherds, the good shepherd is also called here, middle of verse 3, the Lord of hosts. That's that word that is, that title that is particular to Zechariah. 20% of the times that title, Lord of hosts, is used. It's used in the book of Zechariah. It refers to the one who is sovereignly powerful, the one who is able to preserve his people. And notice he says about that God, that powerful, sovereign God, He has visited His flock. That word visited is the exact same word as the word punished in the previous line. I will punish the male goats. I will visit the flock. Same word. It is a word that means to give attention to. And so it's a reminder to us that God gives attention to people as is appropriate to their condition. 
If you are rebellious against him, he will give attention to you to pour out his wrath against you. If you are submissive to him, he will pay attention to you to come alongside you, to help you, to minister to you, to comfort you, to hold you, to give you everything you need as his sheep. And notice he says here, he has visited his flock. They're his. They belong to him. Unlike the goats who do not belong to him, these belong to him. And he has fellowship with them and relationship with them and intimacy with them. And whatever they experience on this earth, these sheep can be confident of that relationship that they have with God. Now, here's the irony. The shepherds and the goats who were the leaders who were supposed to be connected to God aren't. And the sheep who need help are connected to him. There's another irony in this verse. That in his visiting and coming alongside and helping his flock that is, the house of Judah, the nation of Judah. Notice the last line in verse 3. And he will make them like his majestic horse in battle. I like reading and listening to World War II books. I've got tons of them. And I have never heard a story about anybody in battle in World War II riding a sheep into battle. I know in World War I, they rode horses into battle. I don't know of any nation that ever rode a sheep into battle. World War I, II, or anything in archaic history. You don't ride sheep into battle. Unless you're the Lord. And then you will take your sheep and you will make them like God's majestic horse in battle. The weak are made strong. And not only that, notice what happens to the horses of the nations. Verse 5, they will fight for the Lord will be with them and the riders on the horses will be put to shame. The sheep beat the horses because God has equipped them and provided for them. And empowered them. This is the bullied rising up to beat the bully. In crass terms. We find the same idea expanded in verse 5. They will be, he says, as mighty men. They're military heroes. That word mighty in the phrase mighty men is the same word that's used of David's 30 supreme warriors. They were his 30 mighty men. They set themselves apart as being particularly strong. And notice what these mighty men do. They tread down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. They utterly destroy the nations. They grind them into the dirt and the mud. They've trounced them. They've stomped them. It is an absolute beatdown. I don't know if that's a biblical term, but I like it. How could they do that? And they will fight for the Lord will be with them. He's not only present with them, 
He is present to act for them. Which is a good reminder for every believer that when we are in Christ, we have everything we need to help us. He's with us. And He'll fight for us. And He'll give us what we need so that we might fight. And not only does the nation of Israel defeat her oppressors in that future day, but the Messiah will come from them. Verse 14, from them. There's a lot of question about why the phrase from them is used. Them as a plural, the direct antecedent to that, the previous Reference to that pronoun, the previous noun to that pronoun is in verse 3, the house of Judah, which is singular. I think it's just designed to make us understand the collective nation will be the source for this one that will come from that nation, from that people. And from them will come the cornerstone, the tent peg, the bow of the battle. And from him, every ruler, all of them together. All of those define the Messiah. What will the Messiah be like? And they're, they're designed, those terms are designed in verse 14 to help us see the strength and the power and the authority of the Messiah. He is the foundation on which the nation is built. He is, he is the tent on which all things glorious are hung. He is the bow of warfare that defeats every enemy against him and his people. And he is the ruler from which every other ruler in Israel will come. And he will serve as the final ruler. And as a reminder to us that the Messiah is the perfect leader of his people. He will be the shepherd king. And he will be the good shepherd. And the great shepherd to lead us to the truth. How do we sum this up? Everyone follows someone. Everyone wants something. Everyone has desires and longings, heart yearnings. So here's the question. Who's your shepherd? Who informs and directs your desires? What do you worship? Whom do you worship? And what are you wanting out of life? Bad shepherds and empty idols abound. We're surrounded every, every day by people and ideas and objects of worship that will only lead to our destruction if we follow them. Oh, brothers and sisters, be aware. Ask those questions Ask those questions of your wife or your husband. Do you see me following something false? What do you see me wanting? What do you see me desiring? Have I started following a shepherd who's leading me to idol worship? And with that, follow the good shepherd. He'll keep you safe. Ask. And he will give you what you need. Father, we thank you for the reminder of this passage. Thank you that others have received this warning so that we might likewise be warned. And thank you, Father, that 
in the midst of a world where there are so many false shepherds who are enticing us to go astray from you, that you are a good and gracious shepherd who is always available to care for his own. Might we cling to you? Might you give us clarity to see those things that have enticed us to go in wrong ways? And might you give us delight in the shepherd who may not give us instantly everything that we want, but he will always give us what he need, what we need, and he will always comfort, and he will always care, and he will always fight for us and through us. He's the great shepherd. Might we go to him, to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.